Good morning. In our morning devotions, um, I've been emphasizing this this idea that that when we're in a crisis or when we're in a time of chaos, it's really a call into a, a, a deeper posture and a deeper experience of worship. And the psalmist makes it clear, and, and really the the all of Scripture makes it clear that we do not worship God simply because he is useful to us or simply when he is useful, at least in our opinion. That we worship God because he is beautiful. That that, 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 that cry of the psalmist that says, one thing I ask, one thing I seek, is an incredibly clarifying investment of our emotion and our our intellectual abilities and a direction for our will to to take all of the chaotic things of life and to narrow down to our passion for Jesus our passion for our God and we do it not because you know we can manipulate him because we can put him in our debt but we do it because we have encountered his beauty now when you look upon who he is, then you start to see that what he does, how he acts, is an expression of that beauty, of that glory, that he is always operating according to who he is. And the, the more that, that your, 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 you know, your, your view of God is shaped by who he is, you begin to learn how to align your own values, you begin to align what you can hope for. And truthfully, the the hope of a Christian, the Christian hope is unique and distinct and it's utterly necessary. It's our certainty about the future that invades the present. But it's not just our future, but it's the future of all creation. And it's that that hope that comes from the beauty and the glory of God as we see him at work. It's the hope that enables us to face each day, even when each day is bringing news of maybe worse or or bad reports. And we are we are letting our future certainty begin to to truly be the grid through which we explain and understand our present uncertainties. And if you'll do that, if you if you learn to worship God for his beauty, and you watch who he is and you see how he works, you'll have a foundation for confidence. So I want to go back to our study of Romans, and I, I want to go to Romans chapter 8. And, and, and show you in that how Paul is unpacking the glory and the beauty of our God in Romans 8. And it leads us to not only confidence in the presence, in the present, but confidence for our future. And con- that, that kind of hope, that kind of assurance and confidence is a spiritual generator in the midst of uncertain circumstances. So I'll just summarize some of it and then we'll look at we'll look at verses 31 through 39 in some depth. In in verses 26 and 27, 
we begin to realize that our, our hope is, is not always something we fully understand, but our hope is in the work of the Holy Spirit. It says he helps us in our weakness. That we don't even know how to pray. And, and, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but in the midst of COVID-19 and, and all the things going on in our country, it hasn't been easy to know even what to ask for. And so what we have is this confidence that even when we don't know exactly the words to pray for the answers and solutions that we need, the Holy Spirit is praying in, inside our control center, within the deepest part of us. And he's, he's plumbing, he's, he's gleaning out the longings of our heart and he's making them known to the Father. So our first confidence is even if in some ways we feel like our prayer life is weak, our first confidence is the Holy Spirit is helping us with things we don't even know that we need. And then verses 28 through 30, that great passage that begins with our God works all things together for good, is that in a sense you could say it this way, our first confidence or first foundation of hope is we're being helped even with things we don't know. But the second is we can always know that we are always being helped. That there's help with things we don't understand, but we can't understand that we're always being helped. That God is always working things together for good in our lives. I mean, this is a powerful thing when you realize Paul says the work of the Spirit is, is going on even when you have no words. And the work of a loving, sovereign God is operating in all the circumstances of our lives. So, in a sense today, one of the beauties of our God that we worship is our God is our future hope. And He, is, he will sustain us into that future hope. That we can be assured of the Spirit's help. And that God is working in everything. And, and that He he who mediates all things through Christ Jesus is working on behalf of his church. So those foundations, the, the future hope that we have, the Spirit's help, and the sovereign God at work, then, then form the foundation for a series of very practical, very powerful questions in verses 31 through 39. Now, the reason this is so pertinent to us is there ha there, there's, a, there's a question that Paul is answering in all of Romans 8. And it's a, it, it, it's a very relevant question to us today. It, the question is this, how can a Christian face the sufferings and the temptations of life with overwhelming confidence? How can I face all these things with a deep assurance that everything I'm going through is more than worthwhile? And to, to, to not just survive, but to experience flourishing, not just survival, but thrival in a sense. So Paul says this, he says, in response to the fact that the Spirit is helping, that you have a future help, hope, that God is sovereign over all things. What shall we say in response? This is Paul in verse 31. And he says, okay, so 
if you understand what is for you in verses 26 through 30, then he says, then if God is for you, if God is for us, he makes it corporate. If God is for us, who can be against us? See, what you and I must glean and must must really begin to take hold of is God's purposes for your life are being worked out, even when you don't fully understand them. That's what the Spirit is doing. But the His purpose, according to the Apostle Paul, is glory, that you would experience, that you would be glorified. At the end of an unbreakable chain of the work of God in your life, it says glorified. And it's so fascinating to me because it's in the past tense. So you see, God already sees you and already treats you as if you are there, as if you're as beautiful, as if you're as glorious, as if you're as real, as if you're as permanent as you will ever be. He treats you that way because in he has these do- this dual relationship with you of both the present and the future. He he knows what the goal is, and the glo- the goal is he has purposed your glory. That's his purpose to make you beautiful, real, genuine, perfected, complete, and permanent, eternal. So here, Paul is saying, if the God who has purposed our glory is all-powerful, then why are we afraid of any opposition at all? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's an incredibly important question to raise in these days of uncertainty. Verse 32, and he says, He who did not spare his own son... And here's the question, how will he not also give us all things? So if the God who has purposed our glory in order to bring you into that glory was willing to give up his most precious son, then why are we so worried that he would begrudge our needs and fulfilling our needs? Again, I keep trying to get this point across because I, I find Christians all the time that think their needs are only material, their needs are only physical, therefore they need only physical and material solutions. But everything that really matters has a spiritual origin, and everything that's opposed to you has a spiritual origin. So therefore, even to make the material things and to make the physical things of this realm have any sense of glory, they have to have a, a spiritual source, a spiritual resource. And if anything is, is really attacking you, anything that is tempting you, anything that's coming against you has a spiritual origin. Therefore, you need a spiritual resource in order to fight against temptations and accusations and deceptions. But here we find that our God who gave up what was most precious to him in order to bring you as a son or a daughter to glory, will he not freely give you all things? So every time you're worrying, and I'm not saying to, to have a, a sense of concern, I'm not talking about having a sense of, of responsibility, I'm talking about the kind of anxiety, worry, where, you, you know, where, where you're saying basically, if this doesn't happen, 
then I won't be happy. Or if this doesn't happen, happen the way I want it to, then I can't possibly be satisfied. And those kind of deeper aspects of worry that we're talking about here, Paul is saying they're unnecessary. If you see that he he kept the toughest promise, he will keep all the, the lesser promises. And then this one has to do with the state of your soul in so many ways. In verse 33, he says, who will bring any charge? Well, it's God who justifies. So what Paul is saying here very simply is if the God who has purposed our glory has declared you righteous, then why are you using guilt or shame? Why are you continuing to think you're unforgiven? Why are you living without the power of that forgiveness, without the power of recognizing how near you can draw to God because you are acceptable in Christ? If he has justified you, why are you continuing to condemn yourself? And why would you let anyone else? Because Paul says in verse 34, who is it that condemns? He's saying the only one who has a right to condemn you is Christ Jesus. But what did he do? He died He was raised and is even now interceding and praying for you. So the only one who really has a right to condemn you, to say you're worthless, to say, you know, you're not useful enough, to say you're not beautiful enough. The only one who has a right to do that is Christ Jesus. And he has died for your your glory. He has been raised for your glory. And even now he is interceding for your glory. That's pretty amazing. If, if, if Christ, who lived a perfect life and who died a perfect death, is standing before the Father on your behalf, why are you trying to motivate yourself with guilt and shame? Why are you trying to motivate yourself with condemnation? Why are you allowing any unforgiveness in your heart? And in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is the last question that Paul asked in this series. But really and truly, this is the question that all the other questions are really just a version of this one. This is really the question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He's, He's basically saying that the only thing that anyone can ever fear, the only thing that can really harm us, is to be separated from the love of Christ. So the, the central question that Paul asks of the Christian life and of the Christian, him or herself, is, is this. If you believe that you can be separated from the love of Christ, that's the source of doubt. It's also the source of the worries. That's the source of the condemnation. That's the source of the tension. It's such an interesting, and there's such an interesting way that Many of us process our failures and our weaknesses and our limitations. And one of those ways is we beat ourselves up thinking that by beating ourselves up, we will stop our weakness, we'll stop our sin, we'll stop whatever. But but in fact, using condemnation and shame and guilt actually keeps us from the fullness of the realization of how loved we are. If you're only obeying God out of fear, friends, then you're not obeying God at all. Because fear-based obedience is not about God, it's about you. 
It's about avoiding punishment. It's about trying to do it the right way. It's trying to perform in such a way as to be acceptable. So fear-based obedience is not obedience at all. This is why, this is why the commandments are summed up in, in basically two. It doesn't say, out of fear, obey the Lord your God. Or it doesn't even say, obey the Lord your God. It says, love the Lord your God. And then your obedience becomes a demonstration of that love. And you do it because you love God, not because you fear the punishment or fear the penalty. Anyone who does anything out of fear is not doing it for God. They're doing it for themselves. And God, who is not mocked, will always know that. So here we come back to, do I understand? Do I know the beauty of the love of God? Do I worship God? Do I serve God out of out of the fact that I know I am loved by God. Not trying to get love, not trying to avoid punishment, but rather because I know that I am a well-loved a child of God, that I'm infinitely loved by God. And, and, and a lot of what's going on in our life is to get us to the place where we see that so much of what we do is fear-based. And so Paul's question, this, this primary question of the Christian life. Is there anyone, is there anything that can separate me from Christ's love? And that love is for me. So, you know, if you if you read this carefully, you realize Paul is looking around in the world that he lived in, in the reader's world, in the world, and it's accurate of today. And he, he said, here are the things that, that seem like could separate us, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, have come to many Christians. The experience of God's people through the ages has very often been in the words of Psalm 44.22, which Paul quotes in Romans, has been to face death daily. I mean, every day I look at the numbers on COVID nineteen, and it, you know, for a while it was such a, it was such an encouragement because they were going down. In the last short while, they've been going up. Even the deaths have been going up. So Paul is not saying that we live in this perfect world where where it's just so easy to connect to the love of of God in Christ. But here's what he says. None of those can detach us from Christ's love for us. We may, in some ways, ebb and flow in our love for God. But God's love is set upon us and nothing, nothing can separate us or detach us from that love. And Paul has this this statement in verse 37. It's one of my favorite in all the Bible. That even when all of these troubles and hardships, even if we are facing death, even even then, he says, we are more than conquerors. How are we more than conquerors? It's when we recognize we cannot be separated from this love, that that instead we can access this love. We can we can experience the beauty and the glory and the weight of this love. No one can break the chain that God has begun in our lives. See, what Paul is saying is that Christians accessing the love of Christ triumph through 
and over the worst that life brings. And why do we do this? And, and this is where theology becomes really important. Because God knew you before the foundation of the world. Because God loved you before the foundation of the world. And because now in space and time, God is working for your good. I mean, there is sin. There is death in the world. There is a curse upon this earth. And yet in the midst of that, God's love has penetrated into your heart and into my heart. And he is working everything in our lives to our benefit, even these chaotic crisis times around us. He's moving everything. And this is amazing, but he's moving everything in your life that you may live in eternal glory. And Paul is so convinced of this in verse 38 that he says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then he he lists, he says, nothing in human experience, neither death nor life is going to separate you. Nothing in the spiritual realm, neither angels nor demons. Nothing in time, he says, neither the present nor the future. Anything that opposes God's people, any powers, anything in space, neither height nor depth, Nothing, he says, in all creation, nothing can separate you from Christ's love. But here's where it gets really important. And this is where this is where a lot of Christians, I think, have difficulty because they're not taking the scripture into their heart. Why is it that I can have so much confidence? Why is it that Paul can have so much confidence? Because you see, neither my faith nor my obedience. Neither my my hope or my you know my love for God, any of those none of those things are the cause of my confidence. My confidence is that God loves me because of his choice. That, that I'm not forcing him to love me, I'm not obligating him to love me, he has chosen to love me. His love is the cause of my confidence, not not anything in me. You see, if he only loved me because of me, then he wouldn't love me at all. Because my love has gone up and down and all around for him. But he also doesn't love me just, you know, in some way uh, because of circumstances. You know, every changeable thing, everything that's not permanent, you know, that's all in our lives or around us or whatever. These are not the causes of his love. His love is a steady, constant. It is certain because it, it it's based in it's based in him. This is one of my favorite lines. This is one of my favorite doctrines. He loves us because he loves us. Somehow you've got to get this in your head. He loves me because he loves me. And 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 so what we what we see again is this whole contrast of beauty or glory or the glory of beauty versus usefulness. You see, he doesn't love you because you're beautiful. He doesn't love you because you're useful. You are neither. I am neither of those things. I'm neither beautiful nor, nor useful. But rather, 
He is beautiful. He loves me and he's making me beautiful. You see, I can never ever say I'm unlovable, nor can I any longer say I'm unworthy of love. Because if the glorious one, if the beautiful one has loved me, then he has made me lovable and he has made me beautiful. And I can have such confidence in his love because I'm not the cause. I'm the object of his love. And my faith is the means through which I receive his love, but it's not the cause of it. And the more I look fully into his wonderful face, not only does the world grow strangely dim, but also my face begins to reflect the beauty and the glory of his face. You see, his love, his love makes you beautiful and his love makes you useful. And see, until, in a way, until you start accepting that and saying, I'm not the cause of his love. His love is the cause of his love. And you just go to him and you just linger in his presence and you taste his goodness and you experience his beauty, and it begins to reflect. It begins to be transferred. And guess what happens? You become both useful and beautiful. I, I, I'm convinced, you see, I, I'm convinced that one of the reasons we hate ourselves is because we're trying to be beautiful and we're trying to be useful. Ah, when we say, oh, how could you be so stupid? Why do you always do that? What are you saying? You're saying that wasn't useful. Or you're saying it wasn't glorious or it wasn't right. And so much of our self-esteem and our self-worth and our sense of self is determined by these utterly changeable things. Our own emotions are changeable. Our circumstances are changeable. But Paul says, what can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You see, that's the beauty. That's the beauty. And when you encounter that and you say, I am loved by the most beautiful being. I'm loved by the one who never changes. And his love will never be separated from me. Consider, I mean, just think through this with me. It's very practical, actually. So, as you're listening to me, do you know that you've been called of God? Okay. Have you found the gospel, the good news that, that Jesus makes sinners righteous and acceptable to God as they receive his sacrifice, his resurrection, his ascension by faith? Has that come home to your soul with power? Do you know and have you, have you, have you come to that place where you realize your sins are forgiven? that you've been justified, that you've been made acceptable to God? Do you know those things? You see, you realize as important as those decisions and those realizations are in your life and how important it is that you grow more and more to trust those truths. Those would not have, they could not have happened unless first and foremost, God had set his love on you. See, in the depths of eternity, he has loved you. Before time even happened, he has loved you. And now he is at work in a way, maybe you and I don't understand. I don't understand it, but I'm learning to trust even what I don't understand 
because of how beautiful his love is for me. So these questions that Paul asks, who, who shall separate us? If God be for us, will he not freely give us all things in him? These wonderful questions that really, he's trying to beat out of us in a sense, our unbelief, our disbelief, that we've been saved totally by grace and that we are truly, truly, truly safe. Even in the midst of this storm we're living in right now, we are safe. And we can face life without letting fear control us and manipulate us and dominate us. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote on this and he said, this, this is an incredible, relentless, intense logic. He called it logic on fire. Paul is saying, think. Are you afraid? Then you're not thinking. Are you worried? Then you're not thinking. Are you feeling guilty? Then you're not thinking. See the logic, Paul is saying, of the free grace that's been given to you and of the justification that God has accomplished for you. These aren't dry doctrines, friends. They are life in itself. And if you're not living with this overwhelming assurance and power, then you're not thinking. You haven't understood fully. God loves me because he loves me. And if he's for me, who can be against me? What can separate me from this love? Absolutely nothing. Will he not freely give me all things in him? Have I not become more than a conqueror? In Jesus' name, amen.